is no growth in comfort and no comfort in growth. Business today typically values and promotes leaders for their subject expertise. Leaders who have command of the details and execute based on knowledge and experience are highly respected. However, to grow as a leader, you have to get out of your comfort zone. That means learning to lead without just being the expert. Learn to gain the trust and respect of a team that might know more than you do. Get comfortable with ambiguity and with not having all the information. Develop the skills and confidence to lead in a different way. Welcome to Out of the Comfort Zone, and I'm Wanda Wallace. Now, occasionally, like today, I have the privilege of talking to a very successful leader who spends his or her time doing the things we talk about, not just writing about them. So the focus today is my guest's personal experience as a manager, and we're going to talk about a whole range of topics, from building and motivating high-performing teams to creating diverse and inclusive cultures, setting priorities, being a manager and a producer, and understanding politics. So there's a lot to talk about as we go through the show. My guest today is Rupert Jones. Rupert has managed the number one ranked team for equity research in Europe for more than a decade, and he has quite a story to tell about his experience as a manager. He's currently at Barclays. Um, He was at Morgan Stanley, and while he was at Morgan Stanley, he sat on the European Management Committee. He was a member of the Institutional Securities Global Diversity Council, and he chaired the European Diversity Advisory Council. He started his career as an chartered accountant at Ernst & Young and, interestingly, has an MA in Medieval History from University of St. Andrews. So, Rupert, welcome to the show. Thank you very much for having me, Wanda. I'm really looking forward to it. Um, as I've watched you over several years leading and managing and coaching teams, I think uh, there's a lot to talk about in the ways that you do lead. So let's start with this whole topic about building a high-performing team, uh, something I know you've done many times. And I watch you bring together very smart, very competent somewhat competitive people and get them to work together. So what's the, your secret to the strategy of building a team and keeping people motivated? Um, I, I think there are lots of different ways of doing it, but it's really key to understand where you want the team to go. So the direction and the targets for that team have to be very clear even before you start compiling the people and bringing them into the into the business. Um, and then the second absolutely critical thing is getting the right people. Um, and I think I've learned a lot over the years about interviewing and the mistakes you can make and often do make um, and how getting the right, you call them competitive, but getting the right characters and the right people through the door into the business. So can you say more about what how, how you go about looking for the right people? Yeah, I, I think most of us as humans are really hardwired to, to be optimistic and like other humans. And it makes us very bad um, interviewers and hirers of people. Um, we tend to meet people with roughly the right background and qualifications, and um, we're disposed to want them to succeed and work. And it makes us often very lazy around due diligence. And so we don't uh, properly get data. We don't properly um, look at the backgrounds of people, the performance of people. We tend not to be very objective. We tend to be sub- Objective, And so we often make mistakes 
through a, through a desire to hire people when we're not doing the work properly. And the second thing we fail to do is I think many people are quite qualified for roles, but not so many have the characters and the psychological makeup to be truly successful. Um, and the business world gets more and more intense and competitive. Um, and having people who are able to bring intensity and bring a winning, winning mindset, really important. And I don't think most business people are very good at testing for that and interviewing for that. Okay. You know, we talk a lot about how often hiring managers, you meet somebody, you have an instantaneous connection with them, you just have this gut feel that it's the right fit is the word that we hear all the time. And often that fit is derived by things that you have in common, not necessarily what's a real fit with the business. What's your experience of how you get past some of those choices? It's a, it's, it's a very important point and I'm sure we'll come on to it later and talk about diversity because people tend to have gut feelings with people they feel comfortable and familiar with and, and that's a, it's a fatal mistake as you build teams together um, I, I think you have to have all the people involved in hiring decisions conscious that the gut fit is not the right way to do it so you have to build um, a series of interviews some based on competency some based on character some based on culture so you get a full set of um, data points and feedback on people, um, you have to go beyond what you see in front of you. So if you have a, a candidate who's, who's a technical expert, you have to find a way of testing that technical expertise. If they're a client-facing person, you have to find a way of understanding what all their clients think of them, not just the one or two which you're likely to get a data point, um, which will be a positive data point on. So you really have to push the organization to go way beyond what they see in front of them and way beyond, therefore, what they feel in their gut. And actually, you have to be very aware that an organization which hires based on gut instinct and reality is probably hiring a lot of people who look very similar to each other. Um, and and that's, that has to be a bad thing as you talk about compiling and, and bringing together teams. Um, I, I do increasingly think that um, having psychological testing as part of the array of tests is the right thing to do. I think it's something that certainly in financial services uh, people toy with, but we haven't done enough of over the years. Yeah, and there are several tools available that actually will give you a nice review of what this person is likely to be like as a personality. Uh, strengths and weaknesses in every one of those as well. Okay, so you, I can imagine you spend some time thinking about the targets, where you want to go, and then you spend some time thinking about how do we get the right people in the door with some carefully, I hear, constructed interviews around competence, character, and culture data points beyond just the obvious of what the individual is going to give you as references, but understand what everybody sees, who works with them sees about them. Now, how do you get those people motivated? Um, I think humans are motivated by lots of different things. I found in business that uh, making sure the goals are clear is very important. Making sure that everyone thinks we're measuring progress towards them is very important. And making sure that it's incredibly fair is critical. I think people want to work in an environment where um, what we're trying to achieve is fair and objective and understood and that they're recognized for their contribution towards that success. Um, so I think those things are key. Uh, secondly, I think high achievers want to be stretched and developed. I, I don't think they want to languish. I don't think they want to have an easy time. And so making sure that everyone has personal growth and clear 
visibility on what that growth will look like means that the best people tend to respond uh, very, very well. Um, I also find, frankly, giving people autonomy is good. Uh, I think giving underperformers autonomy is a disaster, but giving the best people and assuming you've hired the right people and compiled the right teams, um, that, that must be important to allow people to get on with their jobs and execute on their jobs. Um, it's easier to do that if you've got clear goals and agreed measurement of success because everyone knows we're heading in the right direction. Okay. All right. So again, I get a sense of we got a really clear objective. We've got some metrics around that. It's fair. I'm assuming some transparency so people understand where they stand, what they're trying to do. Everybody's got a strict target and then you got a little bit of autonomy. Now, especially in the business that you work in, you get highly competitive people. How do you keep them from becoming too competitive with each other so that it destroys the team environment? It's it's a, it's a as you know I think it's a brilliant question and the real trick is to make them as competitive as possible without quite destroying the environment um, and, and and if you get it right it's it's brilliant because competitive people like to be surrounded by other impressive high achievers so they although they may feel competition they also appreciate the environment they work in um, I think one of the things you have to do is understand that you're all aiming in the same direction and spend some time around the culture and the uh, it, the environment to make sure people feel that. So literally the physical workspace should be collaborative to, to make people feel they're collaborating well. And you can have lots of different ways of thinking about that. Um, I think building some sort of shared identity and shared culture and even social ties makes some sense because people feel less threatened. Um, but most importantly, you know, teams within an organization are not competing against each other. They're competing as an organization. So reminding high achievers that the common goal is the really critical one and the individual team goals shouldn't take precedence over that is key. And a lot of that's just about communication and clarity of what, what you're trying to do, I think. Well, and then we come back to if you don't have a really clear goal of where you're trying to go with some targets and metrics in place, you're going to have a hard time orchestrating all of this. Um, and I like your thoughts that you want to create a physical workspace even and the things that you do that create a shared identity and culture and social ties that makes a difference. Okay, Robert, let's turn to what I know is one of your favorite topics and mine as well, something we've talked about a lot. And usually creating a high-performing team involves having a team where everybody's not all alike. And that means diversity. However, you want to define diversity or talk about diversity and then creating a culture around that where people feel they're contributing and being a part of it. I know you're passionate about this. So what have you done with your teams that has created that right kind of inclusive culture? Um, there are lots of different things, and actually organizations, I think, have to get this right from very top around messaging and prioritizing to the very bottom where people roll their sleeves up and focus on the diversity of, of teams and organizations. Um, uh, look, I, I personally think it's a, there's a moral imperative and a very serious commercial imperative. Um, We've spent most time thinking about how we prioritize diversity, how we recruit diverse teams, and then how we allow a diverse group of people once they're in the building to express themselves and have equal say and contribution. Um, and all those things, I think, take a great deal of effort. The, the priority has to come from the top. If the top doesn't show it's important, then nobody, not enough people listen. Um, then you want to roll your sleeves up and look and understand the power of diversity and look 
for a diverse set of recruits. Um, you know, 15 years ago when I started hiring a great deal of people in the financial service industry, we, we advertised in the same places for the same type of people. Now we understand that we're advertising globally and we want a vast array of talents into um, each team that we have. But getting everyone to focus on that and be aware of it, be aware of their own unconscious and implicit bias of interviewing and so on it is really important. And then there's no point having those people in the building if you don't then allow all their talents to flourish. So if you, you hire shy people who are technically brilliant, you need to listen to them and not just listen to the noisy people in the room. Um, and so there's a whole range of techniques and support you can put in place to help people flourish in your environment and make sure it's not just one or two types of people that do best. Okay. So give us some examples of the kind of techniques that you typically do to make sure people do flourish. Some of the simple ones are are meetings. If you sit in any meeting with a decent number of people in it, you will see that some people are much more comfortable at speaking than other people. And one of your jobs, particularly as a, a more senior manager, but I think all colleagues should be conscious of this, is to make sure there's an equitable share of the of the floor, effectively, and that everyone can contribute, and that people who don't feel comfortable contributing in that environment are either encouraged or possibly they're asked to contribute in different ways. There'll be some people who want to contribute um, one-on-one and who may not like speaking in a group and you need to encourage those people. So I think every day, for example, you can think about what's happening. Uh, Cheryl Sandberg wrote very eloquently about um, taking one seat at the table, but uh, she's absolutely right. There are often times when you look around a room and the, the unassuming people are sitting in the background and it's all the same people who are sitting at the table making all the noise and you have to make sure that you you actively manage things like that as an example Um, because otherwise you lose out on all this talent and input and it's a it's a terrible waste and leads to underperformance across the business okay all right so here i am i'm managing a team or a group of people there's a big meeting there's a lot of people in the room it's an important topic some people are really comfortable speaking they occupy a lot of the airtime and then others don't say very much and i reach across and ask one of those people to speak up but they often shy away from saying very much how do you manage that that's a a, you're asking a very difficult question Um, and it really depends person by person I think you have to know your people and know where their comfort um, zone is I think you can as a manager you can help draw people out if you know what their perspective is you can say I don't want to put words in their mouth but I think this they'll tend to give you affirmative body language so at least people understand that that person has a perspective or a different perspective or an insight Um, it also allows you to create more of a balanced debate in the room and let people understand they're not necessarily that you're not necessarily listening to the loudest people or that the consensus shouldn't follow the loudest people but there may be people for whom that simply is the wrong forum and you need to grab them offline um, and then reintroduce their thoughts yourself into a debate Um, and you can explain I'm not stealing your views but I I get that you're very uncomfortable in expressing them in a big forum so I'm going to make sure that they're in in the input so I think you have to tailor yourself to your people and it's it's why thinking about everyone individually and understanding they're all different is really important as a manager. Um, You know, you hate to lose those people input, but if you don't understand they're all different and all have different appetites for things, then you probably will lose some of their input. 
Well, and more importantly, you use the val- lose the value of having the diverse team in the first place because you want a different point of view. And then if some of them get silenced, that doesn't go very well. All right. So I get this sense that you want to make sure that everybody has a seat at the table, that you want to draw the voices out as you can, and that you allow people to contribute in different ways. Some are going to talk to you one-on-one, and then you've got to put their voice back into the room. Okay, so that's in a meeting context. Are there other things that you try to do that are going to help individuals flourish? We've done, um, as as you know, Wanda, we've done a lot of um, coaching and development type programs to help people flourish. And and really, we've aimed them often at any minority that is in the organization. By definition, they often need the most support and help. Um, And I think thinking medium term um, over several years, I think investing in high potential individuals from diverse backgrounds um, must be a priority to lose those people when they are scarce and scarce assets is a terrible waste. And so we've built programs around, um, you know, helping them network, helping them get support from each other, have individual coaching, um, go through a series of testing to help them understand their own performance or their own psychological makeup, um, helping them understand how they grow and to be leaders. And, and look, a great diverse environment ends up with a very diverse group of leaders. So it's a, that's a very good end goal. Um, that can be extremely helpful. Um, And also, I think senior people can be very important in sponsoring and and helping develop individuals. Um, I think if you understand that diversity is key, then the senior people should really be treating diverse, high potential people as very precious resources. Um, And when senior sponsors start to really get involved, that can turn the dial, again, often over a number of years, as you see people grow and develop and become the leaders of the next generation. Okay, so coaching and programs. Now, you do this for minorities, presumably not because they believe the minorities don't know how to do it for themselves, but that they need a little bit more nurturing. Is that what you would say? I, I just think um, almost by definition, your minority talent is in a minority. And so if you want to have true diversity across all aspects, then you have to help the minorities because it'll be the minority who feels sometimes out of place. It's in investment banks is often the less talkative people who feel out of place versus the very noisy people. Um, and only when you have a true balance do you get there. So you, you need to work with those groups and make sure that their contributions are used properly and that they develop properly. Um, and, and, and almost by definition, minorities are subject to more uh, unconscious bias than anyone else. And so you have to, to an extent, make sure they understand that and they have techniques to cope with that and deal with that as they progress their careers. Um, and it goes from everything from initial recruitment of, of, of young graduates through to the most senior people. Um, you have to focus on, on, if you need to get diversity right, you have to focus on getting more people in from diverse backgrounds. Okay. Yeah, um, I, I personally believe, as I know you know, that um, when you're in a minority status, however we define minority status, everybody, there's a dominant style out there, talkative or from a particular university or with a particular sport, I think it undermines confidence just a bit because you're constantly second guessing, do I fit, don't I fit? Can I say this? Can I say it that way? And that little bit kind of takes off an edge. So anything you're doing to support people through that, through you know, figuring out how to get their voice heard, I think is helpful. Um, just before we take a break, though, Rupert, one question. Why is diversity such an important imperative for you? You said it's a moral imperative and a commercial imperative. Um, look, I, th- I think it's a moral imperative because everyone deserves a fair opportunity to thrive in finance or sport or 
television. It's very a hot topic in the UK right now because our uh, our national television channel has, has launched um, pay scales, and there's a difference between the male and the female. I, I think everyone deserves an equal chance in life and in the profession they choose, and I have, I think, an innate sense of fairness um, and diversity is is critical to that if, if, if people aren't getting equal chance then we're failing horribly um, I also look I, I think selfishly diversity is very important to teams I've seen teams which lack diversity and not really understood they lack diversity until later they had huge diversity and you suddenly realize how much better the input is the thought the debate the quality of what they do so um, it stems from two places but it starts with really a desire to make sure that everyone gets the chances that they deserve and it, it those aren't restricted to a few people who, as you say, play the same sport or read the same degree subject or went to the same school. Um, and it, stem, it really all stems from there. Okay. I, can, I get a sense of this. All right. So, Rupert, we're going to take a break, but let me see if I can kind of summarize the things that stand out for me out of your conversation. One is this notion that if I'm going to build a really strong, high-performing team, which you've done and managed and held for years that you start with making sure you're really clear where you're trying to take the team, and that is about having targets and goals that are measurable, quantifiable, everybody understand, there can be a bit of transparency and fairness, and getting people on board with the goal you're trying to achieve as a team. And then it's about getting a lot of thoughtful time on how to get the right people to doing the interviewing and making sure that you've dug below the obvious service of connection and really, truly, objectively understand the competence, the character, and the culture of the individuals that are coming in. And then I get a sense of once you've got those people in the team, now it's really a matter of understanding them as unique individuals where their perspectives are, what their comfort zone is, where it is they need some coaching, where it is they need stretching, ways allowing them to contribute and therefore to flourish, but to contribute a bit in their own way, not just in your way. Um, And that leads us up to this topic about how do you have a diverse team and make everybody on that team flourish in the process. So with me today is Rupert Jones. Uh, Rupert is currently head of the reading my notes wrong here, is currently at Barclays, heading the European Equity and Research Team. He has been at Morgan Stanley, and he started his career as an accountant at Ernst & Young and studied medieval history, just to give you a sense of the background. So, Rupert, we'll be right back. When we come back, I want to talk about how you manage all the competing priorities that come across your desk on a daily basis. We'll be right back. Become our friend on Facebook. Post your thoughts about our shows and network on our timeline. Visit Facebook.com forward slash Voice America. How is your work-life balance? In most businesses, no matter where you are positioned, there is always room for improvement. If you're an executive, learn insight about your business. Are you an employee? Learn how to better work with your team. Even if you're not in business, you can learn where your strengths and weaknesses can be played to their best potential. The Work-Life Balance with host Rick Morris can be heard live every Friday at 5 p.m. Eastern Time, 2 p.m. Pacific Time on the Voice America Business Channel. If you want more information on the articles, books, coaching, and seminars we offer, go to our website at www.leadershipforuminc.com. You're sure to find some helpful links, videos, and more to help you create a winning strategy for your organization. Leadership Forum, Inc., helping organizations get it and keep it. 
What does a visual workplace mean to you? How does it contribute to operational excellence? And what steps do you take to put it powerfully in place? Listen to The Visual Workplace, work that makes sense to find out. Each week, Dr. Gwendolyn Galsworth, visual workplace expert and award-winning author, shares tools and strategies to help you make the workplace speak at a glance without saying a word. Learn to work safer, faster, better, and at far less cost no matter what business you're in. Tune in to The Visual Workplace every Thursday at 10 a.m. Pacific, 1 p.m. Eastern on Voice America Business. From the boardroom to you, Voice America Business Network. You are listening to Out of the Comfort Zone. To reach Dr. Wanda Wallace or her guest, call into the program at 1-866-472-5790. Again, that's 1-866-472-5790. You may also send an email to wanda.wallace at leadershipforuminc.com. Now, back to Out of the Comfort Zone. Welcome back. With me today is Rupert Jones. Rupert is currently the head of European Equity Research at Barclays. He has managed the number one ranked team for equity research in Europe for more than a decade um, in a variety of companies before joining Barclays just recently. We've just been talking about what it takes to manage high-performing teams. And if you listen to Rupert's story, you realize that he actually spends a lot of time getting to understand the individuals, really investing in making sure everybody knows the goals we're headed for and what those targets look like, spending time building the culture within the team so that it is genuinely collaborative, that people are trying to be their best, yes, competitive, but not competing with each other, and um, in interviewing to bring in the right sorts of people so that you make sure you've dug past just the obvious data points that people present when they do a normal interview, and you're being as objective as you can possibly be. Now, all of that implies that you spend a good bit of time in the management stuff, not just in the production, the generating results component. So what I want to talk about next is how do you manage to find space for all of that in the course of a very normal day, or busy day, I would say. So, Rupert, one of the things that I've always admired about you is your unrelenting ability to set priorities to focus on what really matters. And I've seen you coach other people on how to do this. So how do you think about priorities, particularly when everybody around you thinks everything is urgent? I think um, it's a really interesting question. I think the most important thing in our business lives is, is you almost sum up in one word, it's simplification. And I, for a long time, I fought my natural instincts, which were to try and do everything really well and worry about all the small things and make them perfect. And I actually felt a bit fraudulent thinking about simplifying and focusing because I felt that it was a sort of lazy response to what you were doing. But increasingly over the years I've worked, I think being clear about what you're trying to do and understand exactly what your priorities is, is absolutely critical. I mean, we all work under increasingly stressful, intense environments. And typically we, I, or other people will drown if we're not clear about what the true goals are and what really matters. Um, and so I spend a lot of time for myself resetting and resetting and making sure I have a very clear top five and top 10 priorities and that I focus on them. And when things come across my plate, I, I try to ask myself, is this one of these? And if it isn't, I worry less and I delegate it or defer it. Um, it's actually easier to tell other people to do it do that than it is to do it yourself. It's much easier to 
sit down and work out someone else's priorities and simplify their lives than your own, I find. But I think everyone in any leadership role at all or any management role has to be very clear about what they're targeting and what's really critical to that and very good and very disciplined about not focusing and being distracted by other things. Yeah, I know, one of the managers at Morgan Stanley, in fact, has said that is it possible to come in every day and be extraordinarily busy and accomplish nothing that really matters? So I think this notion of the top five is an important component. But I hear people all the time when I'm coaching don't know how to set the top five, and then they go to their manager, and their manager confuses them even further. So what's five becomes ten or fifteen. Any advice? Well, I've got advice to managers, which is stop launching initiatives and stop coming up with new things. I think managers tend to tinker and feel they have to come up with new ideas and employees respond very well to um, clarity of strategy and unchanging strategy. I realize that sometimes businesses do need to change, but managers throw out too many different ideas and too many different things which could be priorities and they are very bad at focusing individuals in on one or two or three things that are critical to success. So I, I think to some extent, if your manager's confusing you, you're, you're hostage to the weakness of your manager. But if you go to see your manager, I think you have to be very focused on what the one or two really important things are and how they're being engaged and measured in your organization. And then at least you can leave the office and think about what those things are and how you achieve them. Um, so I would I think managers and employees need to talk constantly about what really matters. Um, you know, I've recently moved job, as you said, and the thing that I'm doing is focusing on what really matters. And I think I, my job is to really come up with one or two things. Um, of course, I will come up with lots of smaller tactical things, but I shouldn't be standing up in front of lots of people focusing on those. I should be narrowing everyone down to focus on the things that really make a difference to performance. Um, and making it clear what those are and, and how we how we achieve the goals that are implicit in those. So um, it, it it is tricky, and with so much information coming into um, one's daily life and one's head, it's it's very challenging. But you're absolutely right. I've seen people and waste not just a day, but waste weeks and months and even years really filling their time with stuff that's important but not critical. Um, and those people tend to not get the professional success that they they want. Um, it's the ones who are very disciplined and clear about where they want to go who tend to have most professional success. Okay. Now, presumably, this means you have to say no a lot of times. So how do, how do you tell people, no, I'm not going to do that because it's not part of my one or two priorities? Um, the great, you're absolutely right. The most successful people I've seen that are all capable of saying no. And there's a huge irony that most people say no very politely and gently. Um, some of the most successful people are actually quite abrupt and abrasive in saying no. But they've invariably, in my 23 years working, got away with it because they're so successful and good at what they do. Um, and so it tells you that people can take a great deal more risk in saying no. Um, people tend to respect your time, for example, if you're not always available. Um, so they, they value the half an hour with you less if you make yourself constantly available than if you explain you're extremely busy and you can't do it for a week. Um, and it has to be next week or the week after. So uh, I, I think it's one of those things that most people are uncomfortable with. Um, a few are very comfortable with, uh, oddly, um, and that you have to practice and try and experiment. One of the things we say to people often is, is try saying no and see what happens. Um, you know, see whether anything really breaks. Um, and I've been coaching some people in the last two months about 
they, they think everything will fall apart if they don't do certain things. And in truth, once they talked to their stakeholders and really thought it through, they realized that um, things will be fine and, and life will go on and the business will be essentially unaffected um, because implicit they're accepting that, that, that they're saying no to things which aren't absolutely critical. Um, so people have to work on it and people have to share with mentors and coaches and so on and managers and, and try it. And they'll see that if they do it successfully, they'll find they create a lot of space for themselves and time for themselves. Yeah, and clear out a lot of clutter along the way so that you're getting some things done that are really going to make a difference in the end of the day. Um, let's turn to this notion about balancing time. And you work in an industry where we say that people are producers and managers, meaning there's real work that you have to do as an individual to produce, to generate results, not just delegate and organize people. And then there's time that you spend managing people, which is not about doing your own production. How do you think about balancing those two and any advice for people who are struggling to balance the two? Um, I think it's very difficult, is the truth. Um, I think people who are pure producers and people who are pure managers are in a, a fairly privileged and easy position relative to people who have forced to do a combination of both. And, and if I'm honest, I think managers who are predominantly managers typically fail on the production side. Um, and that's one challenge. More frequently, you have people who are mainly producers who are taking on more and more management responsibility and leadership responsibility. Um, and there's no um, secret answer to how much how you balance the two things. If you're going to be good at both, you have to be very disciplined and create time to do both. And most um, people in sort of production roles need to understand that probably their DNA is to be excellent at production, but as in many organizations, financial services often promote the best producers who aren't necessarily the best managers and leaders. And so uh, any producer who's taking on more and more of that responsibility needs to understand they have to work very, very hard if they're going to be successful as both rather than as one. And so um, it's a phrase you and I have talked about before, but they, they almost have to become students of the new role, the management leadership role, to understand it as well as they, they work for many years to understand their production role. Um, and without doing that, they're likely to not be very successful in the dual, with the dual role. Okay. So how do you become a student of the management role? Are there particular things you need to do? Uh, the easy answer is reading. Uh, what I really mean is um, it's, it's very easy to write off sort of technical producers as people who can't manage. But what I found is if, if you make them go and learn, so whether it's learn in teaching environments or whether it's learn by reading, people can become much better managers. And so it may not, it may not come instinctively to them, but they can develop ways of, of spending time with their people who report to them, of helping people develop. You can read you know, the Harvard Business Review, for example, and understand very well techniques for thinking about feedback giving or encouraging an open environment. And so I think people think often they just rely on their sort of natural abilities to turn them from a producer to a manager. In truth, a good producer's probably learned a great deal about the production over the years. If they can do the same thing about what makes a good manager, it may not seem completely instinctive and easy, but they'll actually be really quite good at it. Um, and I've seen I've, one of the, my, my favorite colleagues and one of the most successful producers to a manager did exactly that. He went away and learned how to be a good manager. He read as much as he could. He asked for help. He asked for coaching. He asked for teaching opportunities. 
and he's an excellent manager. Um, he's not a gregarious, outgoing individual, but his people think he cares and they think that he's got time for them and it's, it's very successful. And frankly, it takes him less time than it might do because he's good at it, so his team is productive and doesn't need constant looking after. Okay. So what are the hallmarks for you of what makes for a really good manager? You said somebody who's people, who has time for their people and people think they care. Is there anything else? Um, time really matters, but then obviously using that time sensibly, understanding that if you have a cup of tea with someone or a half an hour meeting or a mid-year review, that you understand what makes a good mid-year review. So many people think that in a mid-year review, you talk at your employee. Um, in reality, you should be trying to get them to talk and self-diagnose. So really working on the way you interact with your people is important. I think there's some very simple human things. M- most producers are, are, are wired to be quite selfish. Um, they tend not to be generous to colleagues because they're in competition and they tend to be a bit insecure because they're high achievers and, and want to overachieve. Um, you have to take all those things away to be successful. You have to be generous with your people. You have to want their success to be as important as your success um, and you have to get rid of your insecurity and leave it at the door because the really great managers obviously produce highly talented teams all of whom are good enough to take over their jobs um, that's a very difficult and, and it's a fairly courageous thing, a way to approach being a producer manager but it's definitely the right way to do it okay I love it. I get this sense. I love this. I'll just repeat this one. Producers intend to be tend to be quite selfish because you have to to get your job done, to be as good as you can be in your craft. They're a bit of overachievers, which drives some insecurity. And of course, they like to compete to be the best. And that managers are the polar opposite. You need to be more generous with your time and with your thoughts and with your ideas. You got to check your insecurity because you want to make sure the team is strong enough that any number of them could take over your job. Very interesting way of describing the two different worlds. Um, do you have an idea? Uh, let's talk, I want to talk about emotional intelligence. It's a hot topic that's going around again in the business world. And I certainly talk to an awful lot of people who've been very successful and they're very technically competent, incredibly bright, strong experts, maybe producing and maybe managing, but they're managing an expert. And then this notion that they now suddenly develop emotional sensitivity to how other people are doing is just hard. Any advice or any thoughts, experiences on what it takes to develop EQ? Um, sadly, I think you're right. It, it, it is just very, very hard. Um, again, some of the successes I've seen in the past, well, we, we had a millennial consultant talk to a group of people whose average age was probably 40 to 45 and get them to understand what the younger people on their teams would be thinking and what their needs were in a work environment. And it was, I mean, it was incredibly eye-opening. And we talked about everything from, you know, our relationships with our parents and how different they were to a 25-year-old's relationship with their parents and how generational shifts had come. And, and we then had a panel of younger people to explain how they felt about life. Now, that room was full of some people with great emotional intelligence and, and some people with terrible emotional intelligence. But I think all of them would have progressed at least to some degree in their understanding of the people working for them and some techniques for managing them and interacting with them from where they had been before the session. So I I think it's hard to 
I think it's hard to learn emotional intelligence. I think if you're, you're either born with it or, or not, your environment tends to create it over your youth, I suspect. Um, but I do, again, it's a bit like being a student of management. I think people can learn and become more aware, become more of other, aware of other people. I think um, this is what organizations would do very well to spend more time with um, third-party providers of, of, of expertise around how teams work together, how different personalities work together and so on. Because although it doesn't necessarily give you EQ, it does give you more chance to have empathy and sympathy for other people and adjust your working style to other people. And that's really key. And I do think you can teach and, and learn that over time. Okay. I do find that when, um, especially for managers that are not very comfortable with this emotional side, that if you can give them some simple heuristics of how to understand where people are coming in from or what the personality styles might be different about, that it gives them some comfort that it's not everybody is infinitely different. And then those styles kind of help you start to think, well, how would I deal with this kind of a personality versus another personality? Um, And just recognizing some of those deviations can be enormously helpful. I agree with that one. Okay, Rupert, we're going to take a break again. I think the thing that strikes me in this particular segment is I really like where you started. It's this notion of not trying to do everything really well, but to simplify, simplify, simplify so that you get down to the one, two, three things that are really important. That if you get those right, it's going to make all the difference. And that is a matter of discipline, of thinking about it, of resetting and resetting again, as you said, of learning to say no, of keeping your focus really clear. And as you also said, as a manager, not throwing in too many new initiatives so that people can have some sense of consistency and steadiness over time. They really can understand what is the one or two things that matter and how do I get involved in that one. And then we just been talking about the fact that anybody can actually learn to do a better job of management regardless from where they start. And that's about becoming a student of how it is that great managers really work. So spending time with people and using that time sensibly. So with me today is Rupert Jones. Rupert's currently head of European Equity Research at Barclays. We'll be right back. And when we come back, I want to talk about politics. Follow us on Twitter at VoiceAmericaTRN. Get the lowdown on guests, new shows, and your favorites. That's VoiceAmericaTRN. If you want more information on the articles, books, coaching, and seminars we offer, go to our website at www.leadershipforuminc.com. You're sure to find some helpful links, videos, and more to help you create a winning strategy for your organization. Leadership Forum, Inc., helping organizations get it, and keep it. Tune in to the soul of enterprise, business in the knowledge economy with co-hosts Ron Baker and Ed Kless. Ron and Ed will show you how to recognize that wealth is created by intellectual capital. It's all in the possibilities that we can create and that are created for us. These possibilities are destined to be discovered by human imagination and through the service of others, creating a brighter future for all of us. The Soul of Enterprise is heard live every Friday at 1 p.m. Pacific Time, 4 p.m. Eastern on the Voice America Business Channel and simulcast at the same time on the Voice America Variety Channel. The business community's first choice in Internet talk radio, Voice America Business Network. You are listening to Out of the Comfort Zone, 
To reach Dr. Wanda Wallace or her guest, call into the program at 1-866-472-5790. Again, that's 1-866-472-5790. You may also send an email to wanda.wallace at leadershipforuminc.com. Now, back to Out of the Comfort Zone. Welcome back. With me today is Rupert Jones, the head of European Equity Research at Barclays. We have been having an intense conversation about what it takes first off to develop high-performing teams and then now to develop your management capabilities so that you are setting the right kind of priorities, keeping the focus in the right places and doing the right things for the people around you so they feel cared for and can produce their best. And one of the interesting things that Rupert was just talking about is this notion that as a producer, when you are generating results, when you are the expert driving those results, you're focused on... Um, protecting your turf, being a little bit selfish, being a little bit competitive, so you make sure you're better than everybody else. But when you're managing people, it's the polar opposite. You now have to be generous with your time, and you have to develop people so that they actually could be better than you. And it takes two different hats, as we've always talked about. Now, I want to turn to this last topic, which is politics, because I never talk to people in organizations without this being a top topic. And it's a tricky one. So I want to say at the outset, um, I personally believe every time you get three people together or more, you're going to have politics. And that politics doesn't have to be a negative, dirty word, quote unquote, that it's really politics happen because I have an idea of something we need to do. And now I need to influence other people that that's a good idea and to get on board with doing it. And that influence tactics is really what generates what I think we think of most of the times as politics in the best way. So, Rupert, I want to talk to you as if you're giving advice a bit to your team. And there are people that are in the middle of a very large, complex organization. I think it applies to small ones as well, but a large, complex organization. How do you help people think about the inevitable politics that are going on around them? I think um, I always get people to understand that every organization, as you say, is has organizational politics. I, I love to tell people that many of my university flatmates were uh, become school teachers, and the politics in school staff rooms are identical to the ones you find in Wall Street investment banks. Um, it, it, when you bring people together, and you're right, it's probably when you bring more than two or three people together, you start to get organizational politics coming to bear. So first of all, people have to understand that and accept that. Um, it's part of the way society brings itself together and organizations organize themselves. Um, the second thing people often say is they say, well, that's, I'm not a political person or you know, that's not me. I, I don't like building a network for the sake of a network. Um, and really, they're making a huge mistake because they're abdicating responsibility for themselves within that organization. Um, it, it's, it's particularly with aspiring leaders for whom this is often really, really important, it's a key ability is is to be able to work within an organization, uh, particularly to influence your peers, your seniors, your stakeholders within an organization. So you can't aspire to lead and and, uh, move ahead and decide that you don't, inverted commas, do politics. You have to understand that all organizations thrive with people who can navigate organizations and that, that you're responsible for that. So really accepting that, that politics exists, understanding it, and then accepting your own individual responsibility for working within the organization and influencing people. Otherwise, um, you're going to end up as a sort of siloed producer for the rest of your career, which makes many people unhappy. Not everyone, but it makes a lot of people unhappy. 
Yeah, all right. They don't achieve what it was they thought they wanted to achieve. Okay, so influencing people. Any advice about how you kind of coach people on how to think about influencing other folks? The, the stumbling block people find is uh, some people want to be influenced and are very open to it and some don't. And that makes influencing really quite scary because you're concerned about going to the people who are going to be difficult and expect more from you. Um, so I think working to understand what would help other people, what their agendas are and so on. It's really helpful because if you get confident that you have something that they'd be interested in or you know something they might want to know, then you get confident in going in and speaking to them and through that you influence them. Um, so I, th- I, think, I think spending time just trying to understand what makes your stakeholders tick and what they're focused on is very, very helpful because if you think about it hard, you'll understand where you can help them and help get them to another place. Um, And then understanding that influence doesn't come in 10 minutes, it doesn't come in half an hour, that often it's about building relationships and lines of communication. And over time, you can use those relationships to start talking about your ideas and your perspective and having a good debate. Um, People often go into a meeting and think, this is my chance to make people think something. Um, That's not how organizations work and how human beings work. It's influence is built up over a long period of time. Networks are developed over long periods of time. So understanding other people and then being patient, but understanding you being patient doesn't mean sitting on your hands. It means being proactively patient. Proactively patient. I like that one. Now, one of the topics I know we've talked about a lot is this whole need to build a network and to have a strong network. And I think you rightly say that it's not just with senior people, it's often with peers and sometimes even junior people who can be quite helpful in helping you understand how to build your own influence and your own insights. Um, any advice for people on how to strengthen that network? Again, we, we talked at the beginning actually about hiring and how human beings tend to want to be nice to each other and are optimistic about each other. And, and that's obviously not universally true, but in organizations, it's often true. And so building a network really requires mainly um, uh, uh, creating some time and then being brave enough or willing enough to go and start. Uh, you know, it's often um, finding a reason to talk to someone and then nurturing that relationship over time, whether that's a senior person or a junior person or a natural peer. Um, m- many people who don't have great networks uh, can be brilliant producers, but they come in every day, they do their job superbly well, and then they leave at six o'clock or five o'clock or seven o'clock, and they don't understand about the networks being built around them. And because they work so hard and do their day job so well, they're staggered that other people are building networks. They don't even understand really how that's happened without them noticing. Um, Those people need to understand that elsewhere in the organization, people are spending often too much time actually, but significant time networking and and building influential circles and so on. Um, And it's those hard workers I feel very sorry for because they need to understand they have to carve out some time to build networks around them and throughout the organization. Um, And often they just don't see the need for it until, frankly, they're being frustrated at a promotion level or when they're not being given leadership jobs or whatever it might be. Yeah. I often say, if I have a relationship with you, then it's a whole lot easier for me to influence you. One, I know what you need, I know what you want, I know how you think, I know what style is going to work with you, and you're going to listen to me because we have a relationship. If I don't have a strong relationship with you, A, I know none of that information, and then B, you're not predisposed, one, to talk to me, or two, to 
think my opinions matter very much necessarily. So I do agree with you that the relationships are the, really the critical things. Now, you said the people that work so hard don't even recognize how important the networks are or how much other people are building those networks until they don't get the promotion that they're looking for. So it's not just about working hard. Do you have any heuristic on how much time you think is worth spending on a network and when it becomes too much? Well, I think the, the really good news is that networks don't take that much time. Um, it, it's not like you have to suddenly spend 50% of your working day networking. Um, interaction with people, building relationships over a period of time, it, it can be really quite a quick thing. And it can be over the coffee point. It can be grabbing a sandwich for lunch. It, it, it can be going to the the firm softball day, uh, there are always opportunities. So I don't think it's a huge amount of time. And in my mind, I think it's, it's if, if many of those high producers just spent 5% of their career, their, their professional working time nurturing the, the broader network, that would be a very significant achievement. Um, and I, I think people do take this too far. People take it to an extreme and spend their whole life talking internally and, and frankly failing as in their day job. Um, so the good news is it's not, a, it's not a great time sink, but it is something you have to carve out time to do. Um, and you can't get to the end of every day, think I'm tired, I've done a great job and leave and think, well, maybe it's something for tomorrow or next year or whatever it might be. So it's a small amount of time, but it's, it's making sure you build the relationships, as you say, that lets you understand how people can be influenced because you understand what they need and what their agenda is. Right. Um, I often say to people that networking happens in the marginal time. It's the walk to somewhere, to get the coffee, to get the sandwich, to go to the meeting, to come back from the meeting. And if you think about it that way, there's actually a good bit of time in that space that you just start to make connection. And it's not like you do it in one meeting. It's built over months, weeks, years. All right. So let me turn to the last question here, Rupert, which is in, in every organization, there's at some point in time an organizational sea tide change in senior leadership. And it happens, you know, with a CEO, for example, leaving, and that means there's a reshuffling on the top team, or maybe it's within a division, or maybe, and maybe it's intentional, maybe it's retirement, maybe it's who knows what reasons. But you get a sea tide change in the leadership cadre. And I find that that leaves people quite unsettled who are just a step down in the organization. Any advice for how to manage that change? I think um, I think typically everyone feels a bit anxious and stressed by the change. I think change full stop is it can be stressful, um, and people are worried about what it means for them and whether direction will change, whether they'll fit, whether their current setup will will be the same in in the future, um, and it leads people to. Um, get emotional and uh, you often get conspiracy theories going around what's going to happen when the new boss is in place what are they going to change and often those conspiracies are obviously very untrue and and all it's really doing is wasting people's emotional energy for no reason so I always say to people actually networks are very important being able to talk to lots of other people and get different insights and input particularly if they're from different parts of the business can be extremely helpful so to our previous topic that can help um, the second thing is you should be very open and objective about how you form opinions so you shouldn't assume and, and listen to hearsay you should listen for the new boss and see what he, he or she has to say um, you should look at evidence and hard fact rather than your concerns or fears or what you heard by the water cooler um, and, and so just 
being balanced and calm and judging things on merit rather than on what may happen is, is very helpful and will allow you to, it'll reduce anxiety and stress and allow you to see what's really going on in an organization. And presumably also if you've managed your stakeholders in a good way, um, you have strong stakeholders, then you have people who are going to speak for you as well so that you've got someone who's helping you, you know, make sure you land in the right spot with the changes. All right. Any last advice you'd like to offer for people who are trying to be managers? We have about a minute and a half. Yeah. So uh, I used to finish a presentation I gave with a a quote, which I I think I stole off a colleague. But I always used to say to people, look, we can talk about management forever, but generosity of spirit goes an extremely long way when you're a manager. So if you're generous to the people in your charge, then you won't go far wrong. If you put them before you, you won't go far wrong. Um, I said before, you can learn to be a good manager. So ask for help, ask for teaching, go and study, go and read and understand what makes good management. Um, Always find support, find people you can bounce ideas off. Management can be a bit lonely. Um, People are looking to you for leadership and and encouragement and where do you get yours from? So whether it's within the organization or outside, make sure you have support and people you can bounce ideas off and and lean on. I think that's important. and we alluded to this earlier, but the most important thing is, particularly for producers becoming managers, is success is no longer your own success. Your success as a manager is other people's success, and your chief responsibility is helping other people succeed. And it's, the, it's often the toughest thing for people to get their heads around, is it's no longer about you. It's about how you help others. So if you focus on that and, and understand your job is to make people successful, that will take you a long way. Fabulous, Rupert. I don't know that I could summarize that any better. I think that's brilliant. With me today is Rupert Jones. He is currently the head of European Equity Research at Barclays. Rupert, thank you for being a guest today. Thank you for having me, Wanda. It's a pleasure. And join us next week. Thank you for joining us for Out of the Comfort Zone. Tune in again for another edition with Dr. Wanda Wallace next Friday at 11 a.m. Pacific Time and 2 p.m. Eastern Time on the Voice America Business Channel. Reach outside your comfort zone this week.